Uh, it's a privilege to be here. Uh, Tommy was very influential in our youngest son's life when we moved from Michigan to Wheaton. He was a junior high student, and uh, it was great to have Tommy uh, pastoring him. A uh, great blessing to our family, and uh, we will forever be thankful for that. So thank you, Tommy. Uh, direct your attention to John chapter 21, and I love the resurrection appearances of Christ, and uh, each one of those are individual, and uh, they're designed not simply to prove that Jesus is alive, that is important and significant, uh, but each one is tailor-made for the individual or individuals to whom Jesus is revealing himself to, and so... That is the case in the passage we'll look at today. On Easter Sunday, uh, Jesus appeared the first time to Mary and the other women at the tomb. Then you'll remember that same day, Easter Sunday, uh, Jesus appeared to those two travelers on the road to Emmaus, resurrection appearance number two. As they ran back to Jerusalem, I like to picture these people arriving to the fellow believers in Jerusalem and they're catching their breath and they'll say, you won't believe what happened to us on the road to Emmaus. And the Bible says even before they could tell them, the people in Jerusalem say, well, we have news for you. Jesus is alive. He has even appeared to Peter. That would be resurrection appearance number three to Peter. And then that evening, Easter Sunday evening, Jesus appears to 10 disciples gathered in a locked room. Thomas is not there, so there's 10. That's the fourth resurrection appearance all on Easter Sunday. And then a week goes by, and you'll remember uh, Thomas will not believe, and he says, unless I you know, see the scars in his hands and uh, feet, I will not believe. And then resurrection appearance number five is a week later, and Jesus appears to Thomas and the other disciples, and Thomas famously says, uh, my Lord and my God. So five resurrection appearances, all in Jerusalem in a time frame of a week. And then Passover ends, and people scatter and go back to the places where they live. And the disciples, some of them are going to go back to Galilee. And it's because Jesus has told them, go to Galilee and I will meet you there. And there's even an angel that tells them, you need to go to Galilee. And so they do. And in John chapter 21, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Uh, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, uh, the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. So if I do my math right, I think there's seven disciples involved in this appearance. Uh, five of them, we're told their name. Two of them are anonymous. We don't know who they are. But these seven disciples go back to Galilee in verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. I've heard a few sermons where uh, the pastor would say, you know, Peter's kind of living in disobedience and he's, you know, thinking of not following Christ and going back to his old job. And 
I would say, no, that's not correct. He is here in obedience. He was told to go to Galilee. There's already been an appearance of the resurrected Christ to Peter that happened on Easter Sunday. And we aren't told the specifics of that resurrection appearance in scripture, but I'm sure that there was a reconciliation there. Peter had denied Jesus three times. And I believe that all is well between Peter and Jesus. Peter is there in Galilee because the Lord told him to go. And so, of course, he's going fishing. And if you're a fisherman, you understand that. And so when Peter says, I'm going fishing, what do the other disciples say? They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. Uh, And there's a definite article there, the boat. And I think it's the same boat that these disciples were in three years ago. So now you need to picture them in the boat, the fishermen on a very familiar lake. It's Passover, we know it's springtime. We're gonna find out they're going to fish at night, so you have to picture stars up in the inky sky and there would be a springtime breeze in the air at night and it's a familiar setting to them and uh, life is good. They know that Jesus is alive and they're out on the lake fishing. Can it be any better? Well, I guess it could because you read the rest of verse three, there's one slight problem. They said, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. I'm sure they pulled out all of their old tricks. They knew all the fishing holes. They knew how to do it and uh, they catch nothing. Verse four, just as day was breaking, And so on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, you have some hills there. And as the sun is starting to come up, the sky begins to turn pink. They know in a few moments when it crests over the top, it's going to be no good fishing at all. And so they're about out of time. They've tried everything. But just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Down in verse 8, we are told that Jesus is about 100 yards from the disciples. They're 100 yards out into the lake. And so uh, I've never been to Lucas Oil Stadium, but I'm assuming your football field here is about 100 yards long. So if you have been there, imagine you're in one end zone, and there's another individual at the other end zone. And uh, if he yells to you, you can hear him, but you won't be able to know exactly who that person is. So that's kind of the situation here. Jesus, verse 5, said to them, children. And uh, I can imagine as he says that in the early morning, not a lot of people out yelling on the lake, his voice hitting the water, there's going to be an echo. And it's very interesting, the word that he uses here, children, is not the normal word that you find for the word children. It's kind of a special term of endearment. And I tried to think of in English what would be the equivalent. And uh, the pastor of the church I go to, uh, he calls his children, he calls them kiddos. And I think that captures kind of the, the feeling of this. He doesn't just say children. He's speaking to grown men, brawny fishermen, but he calls them kiddos. 
uh, term of compassion and tender love. So imagine Jesus as he yells, children, you can hear it kind of echo, children, children, children. Do you have any fish, 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 fish? Um, those of you who are fishermen, um, you don't like to be skunked when you're fishing. And the last thing you want is somebody to ask you how many fish you have. And so they need to answer that question. And they answered him, no, 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 no. Why is Jesus doing this? Does Jesus know if they have any fish or not? I would submit to you, he, he knows. So why is he asking them a question when he already knows the answer? And why does God in the Garden of Eden ask Adam and Eve four questions that he already knows the answer to? And why was Jesus, when he was involved in ministry in people's life, he often asked people questions when he already knew the answer? Well, Jesus isn't asking for his benefit so he can learn something. He's asking for their benefit so they can learn something. And what is it that he wants them to learn? Well, he says in verse 6, he said to them, Cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Hmm. What's he doing there? Well, he's kind of trying to make them think, this is very familiar. Weren't we here? Same lake, same boat, same fishermen, same experience, fished all night. Didn't that happen to us in Luke chapter 5? Uh, yes, it did. And Jesus was teaching likely from the very same boat, Peter's boat. And the disciples at that time were on the shore washing their nets. And they had fished all night and caught nothing. And Jesus said, go out to the deep and let down your nets. But we have fished all night and caught nothing. But at your word, we will let down our nets. And they did, boom, instantly, a net load full of fish. Jesus is recreating that same experience three years later because he wants to teach them something important. Verse 6, so they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. As soon as they throw the net in the lake, instantly it's filled with fish. Verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, humbly referring to himself, won't even write his own name, that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. In any gathering of God's people, there are going to be some people who have more spiritual maturity and more insight and more understanding. And they're going to be able to see and discern Christ and his hand in the situation that they're going through. And maybe you are that person, kind of person here today. John is functioning that way in Peter's life. John 
quickly picks up what's going on here. And he knows the identity of the person a hundred yards away. And so he turns to Peter and says, hey, Peter, it's the Lord. In verse 7, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Peter's probably stripped down to a loincloth and he's been working, throwing that net, probably got a little bit of a sweat going there. And when John tells him, Peter, hey, that's the Lord over there. And Peter, now he puts it all together. Oh, it is. And so out of respect, he's going to put on his outer garment, but he isn't going to wait for the guys to row him ashore. He is so eager to see the risen Christ again that he jumps into the water and swims ashore. Well, maybe just a word of application here. If you're one of the people at Castleton Community Church and God has blessed you in a way that you understand his word and you have some spiritual maturity and maybe God will bring people into your church that don't have that same background and knowledge and uh, sometimes we can get frustrated with people that are kind of slower to pick up on things than it seems they came to us and yet the reason that God has those people in the same boat with you isn't so you can get frustrated with them, but rather you can love them and show them and help them to see who Christ is and how Christ is intersecting into their life at this point. You are John and you are to say to Peter, oh, this is the Lord. This is what's happening here. What a great thing to be a part of a church where there's a, a diversity of personalities and Peter is different from John who's different from the others and yet we're all disciples together. Yes, some have more maturity than others but you are to lovingly show people and help people understand the Christian life and the character of God. That's exactly what John is doing for Peter. I hope that is true of your church here. And so Peter launches himself into the water. In verse 8, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And now we have one of the most beautiful scenes in the scripture. Uh, we've already heard it read out so well. Let me read it again without any words of comment. I'll save those for afterwards. But just picture this beautiful scene in your mind. Verses 9 and following. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come. Have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, 
took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. So the question we are to ask is, why does Jesus reveal himself in this particular way to these disciples? And what's the lesson for us today? They already know that Jesus is alive. Verse 14 says, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Third time recorded in John's gospel, third time to this group of disciples. There's actually been more appearances to that, but third time to this particular group of disciples. So what were they to learn and what are we to learn? Well, I want to mention three things. Uh, the first point's going to take much longer. Have no fear. Point two and three are much quicker. Point three is only 30 seconds long. Um, but the first thing I think that they are to learn is something about the character of Christ. Again, not merely proving that he is alive, but the risen Christ. What is his character? First, it's revealing that the risen Christ is sovereign. He is in control of all things. Think about it. He's in control of every fish in that lake. And all night long, he can keep all of the fish out of the net of fishermen who know how to fish that lake. And Jesus sovereignly says to all those fish, don't go in that net. And so they don't. And then when they do throw the net in, Jesus sovereignly can say to 153 of them, now get in the net. And now they do. And Jesus is sovereign over all of the fish in that lake. He's sovereign over every bird that's flying in the sky. He's sovereign over all the stars in the night sky. He's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over the times and seasons, the kings, the rulers, the angels. You ever ask yourself, well, where did Jesus get that authority? The answer in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, God raised him, Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put him, he put all things under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church. Count it up. Paul uses the word all or every four times. And he's letting us know that Christ, the risen Christ, is sovereign over all things because the Father gave him that authority. And many people will claim to be Lord. Well, Jesus actually is Lord. In the book of Acts, the first prayer that is recorded of the early church, you can look it up in Acts 4, verse 24. The very first words of the New Testament church's prayer meeting recorded for us, the first two words are sovereign Lord. And the early church knew that Christ was sovereign. And so friends, Christ is sovereign over all things, including all the events that have transpired in your life. And I've had some dark providences in my life. I'm sure that you have. It is good to know that all of those things are filtered through the sovereign hands of the risen Lord. 
Christ is sovereign, but this passage also shows us something else about the risen Christ. Not only is Jesus sovereign, but he is also tender. How is Christ's tenderness communicated in this appearance? I already mentioned how he uses that word, that tender word, when he calls them children. But did you catch it in verse 9? He prepares a breakfast. The fish are all laid out. He has taken care to kind of set the table, if you will. And then he invites them in verse 12. He says, come and have breakfast. And then in verse 13, it says that he serves them. He took the bread and gave it to them. The whole story is filled with tenderness. Well, Christ is sovereign, but he is also tender. Uh, my father passed away in May at age 87. He was a believer, and I went out and did the funeral, and my, our family was gathered there, and uh, it struck me that as a pastor, I'd been around many widows and prayed with them and told them how much God cared for them, and now for the first time, my mother was one of those widows, and man, it just kind of got me in a different way, and as I was looking through the scriptures, I found uh, a verse I'd never noticed before, Psalm 68, verse 6. I shared this with my mother at my dad's funeral. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. I shared that with her and I said, Mom, you know, I was worried about what are you going to do after, you know, all these years of marriage, 68 years, now you're all alone and we invited her to come to move to Atlanta to live with us and she's like, oh, I don't know. And, I'm th and I was thinking, you know, Lord, what's going to happen to her? Well, God settles the solitary in a home. You know, we read the names of the kings and presidents and dictators causing problems around the world. And it turns out if you give a person enough power and then you give them some resources to go with it, usually the combination isn't good. Well, here is the risen Christ given absolute power and all resources. And what is he going to do? I don't think any world leader is going to come and prepare a breakfast for you and I and say, well, here it is. Seated in heaven, he, God calls himself the protector of widows, the father of the fatherless. He settles the solitary in a home. The risen Christ has absolute sovereignty over all things. And what does he do with it? Because he has a heart of compassion. He makes a breakfast for his disciples. He is not only sovereign, he is also tender. And maybe you sing the song, Mighty and Merciful. He is each. I guess as the older I get, uh, you know, Tommy and I hang out with pastors who believe in the sovereignty of God, and we've probably both been to conferences on that, and amen, I believe it. Uh, eternity is depend upon, dependent upon it. But also, as the older I get, aren't you glad that we believe not only in a sovereign Christ, but we also believe in a tender Christ? 
total sovereignty and tender sympathy. Christ is filled with both. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And I hope Castleton Community Church will be known as a church that knows God and knows that he is sovereign over all things and we find great comfort and hope in that. But I hope as God brings more and more people to your church, maybe the doctrine of God's sovereignty will be new to them, but wedded and mixed with it has to be the truth about Christ that he is filled with tenderness and compassion. And if you are a Christian today, the reason that you are a Christian is because Christ is sovereign. And when he said to you, come, you came because he has all authority. But he also said, come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you came to Christ, Christ's call is sovereign, but you also heard words of tenderness and care. So I think Jesus is trying to reveal those things to his disciples, that he is sovereign, and that he is filled with tender love for them. There's another thing that is revealed, I think, in the passage about the character of Christ, and that is that Jesus is full of forgiveness. Uh, and this isn't quite as obvious when you first read it, and just think about that for a moment. How is Christ's forgiveness being shown in this meal that he has prepared for the disciples? Think of who is in that boat. You have Peter who denied Jesus three times. You have Thomas, who is forever referred to as Doubting Thomas. How would you like that to be the nickname you are given for everybody? So you have Peter, who denied Jesus, Doubting Thomas. You have the sons of Zebedee, James and John. They're the ones who drifted and fell, fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says, hey, can't you stay awake and pray? And then all seven of the guys in the boat, they all... Uh, deserted Jesus when they came to arrest him. And so think of who's in that boat. You have a denier, a doubter, a couple drifters, and then seven people who deserted Jesus. Well, just the fact that Jesus is showing up here to minister to them hints about his forgiveness of them. But there's one part of the story that especially, I believe, speaks of forgiveness. And it's found in verse 9. And I'll read the verse again, and there's one word in there that speaks about forgiveness. And as I read it again, see if you had to pick a word, what word would you pick? Verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And you're thinking, uh, what word could that be? Well, I think it's the word charcoal. And the reason I say that is this. It's a very rare word. Only found twice in the Bible. Right here is one. There's only one other place in the scriptures that mentions a charcoal fire. Most fires are made out of wood. In the ancient world, if you had a charcoal fire, it means you had some resources and not everybody would have that. If I was to ask you, where else was there a charcoal fire in the scripture? 
Where would that be? Well, it happens to be just a few pages back in John's Gospel. In the court of Caiaphas, it's a cold night. Jesus has been arrested. In the middle of the high priest's courtyard, there is a charcoal fire. And Peter is there at a distance watching to see what will happen to Jesus. It gets kind of cold, and so he warms himself by the fire. And then a little girl comes and says, hey, weren't you with him? Your accents. And Peter three times says, no, no, no. And the scriptures record that Jesus glances at Peter and their eyes lock the third time he denies the Lord next to a charcoal fire. Jesus knows that embedded in the mind of Peter will be that experience of warming himself by a charcoal fire as he denies Christ. Peter and Jesus have already met on Easter Sunday for a private encounter. I think... There's reconciliation and forgiveness. I don't think Peter is racked with guilt at this. You know, he didn't dive into the water because he needed, no, he, all was good. But now Jesus is using this experience of great pain and denial. He now turns it into a place of joy and celebration of a meal that's been prepared. We won't look at it, but you know the story, what happens next three times, three times by this charcoal fire, Jesus is going to ask him, Peter, do you love me? Peter's going to answer and he'll say, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And it's Jesus' way of restoring Peter to the position of leadership. And he's saying to the disciples, yeah, I know that he denied me three times by the fire, but now all is well. We're having a great meal here Peter is now the leader, and he is going to lead the church and feed my sheep. And so I think the charcoal fire speaks of God's forgiveness. And Christ is able to forgive even the the most vile of sins. He is sovereign, he is tender, and he is filled with forgiveness. As Tommy mentioned, I I now get to travel around the world. In a couple weeks, I'll be back in Liberia, but... I've been to some amazing places where God's kingdom is growing and the ministry, uh, the mission board I'm with, we go to places that aren't served and so some pretty remote places. And so I've been in a country like Bhutan and sat and watched literally thousands of, of Buddhist people spinning prayer wheels and hanging up flags and saying words of repetition, hoping, hoping, hoping somehow they're going to be uh, right with God. And I've been in India where there are Hindu extremists and uh, they too get people to do certain things. I've been in Africa where there's uh, witch doctors with African traditional religions. And the thing that's common in all of those locations is in all of these religions, they always give you something to put in your hand to do or something you need to say. And there is no assurance and certainty of being right with God, but they all tell you to do this, do this, do this. And Christianity is the only religion of the world where we don't put something in someone's hand and we say you have to come with an empty hand and all you have to do is confess your sins and God through Christ will give you forgiveness. There is no other religion like that in the face of the planet. The risen Christ, absolute sovereignty, full with tender love for his children and he 
bestows forgiveness in abundance. And I hope that your church will be a church where sinners will find forgiveness in Christ. Character of Christ, he's sovereign, he's tender, and he's forgiving. Second point, I think there's something here, not about Christ, but about the Christian life. Two things. First is the Christian life is to be a life of joy. What a great moment as they celebrate this meal together. And it strikes me that uh, the risen Christ has no problem whatsoever to speak with absolute authority to tell these men, you need to go to the ends of the world to make disciples of all people. And he's going to say that in an upcoming resurrection appearance, the great commission. But here we have the great invitation. Christ, before he says go, he is going to say come. And when he says go, he means it. And he knows that many of these same men are going to lose their life. And I've been to India a few times. And one time I was there, I asked, well, where's brother so-and-so? Uh, he's not here, and they kind of looked at me, oh, you didn't know? Um, he and his family were burned alive in their car, northern India, by, by Hindu extremists for preaching the gospel. And the way they said it was, yeah, there was some sobriety to it, but they were like, hey, we're going forward, we're going on, that's just how it is in our country. And I could repeat story after story. I was in Mongolia, and you know, we were meeting at night with the shades pulled down because you didn't want anybody to see what was going on in there. And somehow I asked the question, well, how many of you have been in prison for the gospel? Hands up all over the room. You know, roll up your sleeve. Here's the scars on my arms. Um, Christ has no problem telling people you need to go to the ends of the earth and share the gospel. But before he says go, he says come. And as I get to be out with missionaries, the missionaries that really have the staying power to stay in there through hard times, yeah, they've heard with the authority the Great Commission to go, but what gives them the staying power to do that in a way that's winsome and loving and with courage is they know that the risen Christ, before he says go, he says come. Come and enjoy this meal that I have prepared for you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So if you want to send out missionaries from Castleton Community Church, yes, have a missions conference, give the Great Commission, tell people that's what we're supposed to do, but have the life of your church be one of teaching young people as they grow up. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He is sovereign. He is tender. He is forgiving. And he's not a harsh and cruel taskmaster. He is one who gives to us, and it's a privilege to go to the ends of the earth. The Christian life is to be a life of joy. But secondly, it's also to be a life of hope. Do you ever, as you hear the story, ask yourself, well, why did Jesus say in verse 10, bring some of the fish that you have just caught? Why did he say that? Did he look at the men as they came ashore and went, oh, I thought there was only five of them. There were seven guys in the boat. I don't have enough. Or, wow, they sure look hungry. I didn't make enough fish. Hey, can you bring some of the fish that you just caught because I didn't make enough? 
No, that's not how it is. Jesus can just speak the word and feed thousands of people from a few fish and loaves of bread. He knew exactly how many fish were in there. He knew exactly how many men were in the boat. Why did he say in verse 10, bring some of the fish that you just caught? And really, if you think about it, did they catch the fish? Or did Jesus... This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For you, for we are Christ's workmanship in Christ Jesus, created for good works that God has planned before the foundation of the earth. See, it is a mercy of Christ that he is willing to include the fish in the breakfast. He didn't need to. He even gives them the credit for catching the fish when they couldn't, and he gave them the fish. I think the hymn writer said it um, in a hymn that he wrote about, uh, we bring to Christ what is already his, and he accepts it from our hands. Is that not amazing? So God has prepared good works for every single person in this room that is a Christian, He's prepared them before the foundation of the earth. And then at the end, you get to bring those to Christ in glory. And then you even get rewarded for the works that he planned and enabled you to do. In essence, Christ is going to say to you at the end of time, hey, bring some of the fish that you just caught. And as you're bringing it, you'll think, I I really didn't do it. I know, but bring it anyway. The Christian life is to be a life of hope. And in this story, um, the nets are not breaking. And it's kind of like, it's even better than what happened three years ago. And I'm kind of getting old enough now that I have more in the rearview mirror that I have in front of me. But what gives me hope is that this story, it's a repeat of what happened earlier, but it's even better because the nets aren't breaking. And as you all get older like me, Be encouraged, be hopeful. God has more things yet for you to do and they're gonna be even better than what you did three years ago. That is wonderful. So the Christian life is to be a life of joy. It's also to be a life of hope that God is going to accept the things that you do even though he's the one giving you the grace to make it happen. Final point, I'll close with this. Do you ever read the gospels and go, man, I wish I could have been there. Wish I could have been there on the shore of Galilee. What would it have been like to be in that boat and to have Jesus do this and eat that bread and eat the fish? Wouldn't that be a wonderful experience? Well, be encouraged because um, one day you are going to be there. Uh, There is going to be another meal that is served And this time, it's not going to be for seven guys in a boat. Uh, And you can read about it in Luke 12. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come serve them. 
It's going to be a repeat of the same experience. The risen Christ is going to invite you to the table and then unbelievably, just as Jesus served these men, he is going to serve his entire church. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made himself ready, herself ready. She is clothed in fine linen. Just as Peter, out of respect, said, that's the Lord, give me my cloak to put on, and he swam ashore. Likewise, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride, the church, is going to be clothed in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And yes, we will be robed in the righteousness of Christ that day, but we're also going to be robed in the righteous deeds that we have done for Christ. It's kind of like, hey, bring some of the fish you just caught. So nobody's going to the marriage supper of the Lamb without anything in their hand. Everyone here is going to bring something. And yes, you will know that you were there because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. But you're not going to go empty-handed. You are going to be robed, the Bible says, Revelation 19, in the good works, the good deeds that you have done for Christ, that he planned before the foundation of the world. What are you going to be bringing that day? How wonderful that Christ will accept it. And somehow it's going to be incorporated into that meal, into that worship celebration for all eternity. That's my prayer for you as Castleton Community Church, that you will know that Jesus, the risen Christ, he's sovereign, he's tender, he's forgiving. And may your church be filled with joy and hope. And then even as you serve the risen Christ with an eye to the future that a better day is coming. And whatever my service that I render now, Christ is going to accept it as part of my worship that you, I give to him, even though he himself is the one who gave the fruit that we bring. Why don't you uh, pray with me, please?